Welcome back, everyone, to our podcast on Dark Matter. This is part two in our series of Dark Matter, and fingers crossed it is the final part. We've gone through a lot. In our first part, you may have noticed that there was a lot that we spoke about as to why the Dark Matter hypothesis has formed all of the many different versions. Hey, Rolling Stone, Captain Deltron, all of our people off Periscope are live at the moment. This is a simulcast, as I've said before, between our podcast, which will be across Metal Balls. Hello. Uh, It'll be across Google Play and Apple iTunes. And of course, it'll be at Real Gab Smacked at Instagram. You'll have to forgive uh, this podcast. Uh, There might be some slight jumps here and there because we take breaks in between answering uh, people on Periscope, our beautiful fans there at periscope.tv forward slash Gabversity, G-A-B-V-E-R-S-I-T-Y. And Nuj asks, why is your nose red? Uh, I'm getting ready for Christmas. Uh, That's why uh, uh, Ema says I am sexy. Uh, Thank you. I'm wearing a tea cozy and I'm in a jacket which I bought from Goulburn the day that I was soaking wet and riding a Harley Davidson back to Sydney, but that was a few years ago. Thank you for the nice gloves. Yes, that's right. One glove was from Canada, which I've torn off, true faith, to allow the fingers to move. And the other one, my mum got me as a gift and I've lost the alternate glove of each one. So now I have non-matching pairs. All right, so let's move into our subtopic. The first one being cosmic microwave background radiation. This is great. I look forward to, you see, you guys, once you hear the podcast, you can say you were on it. (laughs) That's the pretty cool thing. Let's talk about the cosmic microwave background radiation. That's what we're doing today. Now, what is, what is, as we said, CMBR? So I'm going to call it CMBR, just to be very clear, cosmic microwave background radiation. Now, what is that for people who are on a podcast? I have to say welcome to our guest here, excuse me, history history buff, who is a chef. And My Kitchen Rules, if anyone's in Australia, just ended with the winner getting 250000 Australian dollars, which of course is worth about five cents American. That is, of course, a joke. Uh, it is a 1.3 ratio. So what would that be? Somewhere around two hundred and ten dollars or $205,000 American. So congratulations to them. It was a guy and his partner. I think they were married. Uh, like guy and his wife, sorry, is what I mean. And well done. Congratulations. Sorry to the losers. But as they say, no price for second best. Now, the cosmic micro background radiation, what is so important about it? Well, as we said, the main theme across both Dark Matter podcasts is that we are developing as scientists or as human beings. It's a mystery of the universe. Uh, no one knows what causes it. Well, that's a very good point. So Rolling Stone has said no one knows what causes it. That, I would say, is part of the definition of science in that you one cannot know and we're aware of the fact that we can't know. And so we come up with hypotheses that get closer and closer to not only depicting what we see around us but predicting what we might see and we can test our predictions against what actually occurs. So that's another very good point. So why is that important? Well, as I said in the last uh, part one of Dark Matter, really what's going on in science, and I talk about this in Gabversity as much as I can, is that we are developing different ways to sense what we can 
observe, but different methods of observation. So in real life, subconsciously, we do that through hearing, through sight, through, you know, through sound, through taste, or hearing and sound, the same thing, through touch. Now, and then if we want to know if something is real, we use all those senses. And if they all match up, then it's, we're, we're probably seeing something in front of us that we believe to be real or at least real enough so that we can interact with it. As they say, walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, etc. Even though that's not completely true, but science is aware of that, as, uh, of that irony. Now, with dark matter, what scientists have been doing is since even Bessel back in the 19th century, as I mentioned in part one, have been developing ways <laughs> to see what is out there. And so things like, <laughs> be right back, no worries. So things like... Um, so radio telescopes, infrared, learning how to see through infrared, developing different types of eyes that we don't have as humans. So infrared, uh, being able to see that, being able to see gamma rays, X-rays, gravitational waves, uh, learning how to hear what's out in space via different mechanisms. Now, one of those is the cosmic microwave background radiation, CMBR. So when the Big Bang hypothesis was something that was come up with, and the lambda cold dark matter cosmological model that we spoke about in the last episode, it of course was going to bring with it some predictions. One of those predictions would be that we should see all around us in three dimensions this special type of radiation that would occur on your TV as static. So, you know, in the old days when we had analog TVs before digital, when you move your antenna around, you get a little bit of static, and about between 5 and 13% of that static is cosmic microbacker radiation. It's a hard concept to understand, but the way to make it easier is to imagine that instead of living in a three-dimensional universe, it's actually four, but forget time for a sec, imagine that it's only an onion. So instead, so instead of a four-dimensional hypersphere of a universe, we live in a three-dimensional sphere, and we're all 2D. And what we're doing is we're moving from the center of the onion, which would have been the beginning of the universe, gradually outwards. And each layer of the onion is a next uh, space in time. Let's call it that. And we live on, a, on that flat plane or the slice of the onion, which is our 3D world in time. Riveting. That's so cool. So what happens is the Big Bang is at the center of the onion. And as it explodes outwards, it's exploding outward with time. But of course, as it's exploding outwards... Each layer of the onion, because it's further from the center, has a lot more of a surface area, which means that that explosion has to fill it all out. So it gets weaker, if you imagine, something like that. And in reality, what's actually happened is that we, in three dimensions, are moving with this. This is not completely accurate, uh, and I'll get into more of the details in a moment. But the analogy is that we're moving with this radiation, but because we're moving further away from the center, space is getting stretched. Okay, which is not scientifically correct, but I'm giving you an analogy. And that stretching meant that that light that flashed out at the beginning actually gets stretched and stretched and stretched, like diluted in a way, um, uh, you know, with space. And so by the time we see it around us today in our three-dimensional slice of our present time, that light should be so stretched that it is almost at zero degrees, absolute zero. It's really, really, really stretched out really long. Like spaghetti, it's just stretched out really long. And the funny thing is that we predicted that as human beings under the Big Bang model, or the Lambda CDM, as we call it, cosmological model. And lo and behold, exactly as predicted, 
it was discovered. Now, it was discovered by accident, but nevertheless, it was discovered. Now, when I say at the Big Bang, not exactly fuzzy pandeist. It was about three to 400,000 years after the Big Bang, because what happened was that the temperature cooled enough so that atoms could join and create hydrogen. Now, of course, it's barely observable. We have no idea why it exists. Um, well, I, the explanation I gave is, is a hypothesis that was tested uh, and, and it exists exactly in that, in that, uh, in that form. But, but you're right that we can't actually know. Uh, I'm just answering someone on, on Periscope. Uh, <laughs> pigeons. Yes, that's right. It was the pigeons. That's exactly right. If anyone knows the story, Captain Deltron is quite a history buff when it comes to science. So he has mentioned that the story of the accidental discovery of CMBR was via the pigeons. Look that up on YouTube. You will find it. So we've got another few minutes in this segment. Is that measurable? It is measurable. And we are getting better and better at measuring it over time. So since it was discovered in the 20th century, there are satellites that have been looking for it and detecting it with better and better res resolution. And I think Planck was the last one. There were three iterates. The first one was WMAP, uh, if I can remember correctly. And that was according to Hinshaw and others in 2013, which provides improved accuracy. I think there was one before that, which I can't remember, um, but I don't have it on me at the moment. So big change. Yep, definitely big change. That's what they say. Okay. Now, how was it measurable? Well, it's the technology that does it is quite amazing. It can detect it all around us. Now, we this is the hard part. How can it be out there but around us here? And that's because the slices that I'm talking about of the onion are three-dimensional slices. And the, the onion is actually four-dimensional, including time, which is why the background radiation moves with us because we are moving away from the Big Bang at the rate of causality itself. And so when the light moves with us, that escaped. No, that's all right. I'm used to it. Autocorrect. Uh, just to explain to people on our podcast, on Periscope, people type in their comments. And, of course, autocorrect ruins people's comments quite a fair bit. But I've been on Periscope long enough now to, to understand what people are saying, uh, to counteract the autocorrect. <laughs> all righty. Okay, here is another very good point. We have to talk about baryon to photon ratios, which we have discovered in the CMBR through CMBR anisotropies. Now, what does that even mean? Well, isotropy is something I spoke about in the intro to the first cast, part one of Dark Matter. Once again, guys, apologies for the disjointed cast, uh, because we are talking to people on Periscope as well, and it's actually a lot of fun interacting with people on Scope and getting different uh, ideas of what's going on. I have to welcome now to our Periscope, Captain Ginger, who's just arrived. And I'm going to listen to this before I publish it because it might <laughs> be so disjointed that I'll have to do one offline as well. Now, what happened was that, as we can hypothesize, when after three or 400,000 years into the inception of the universe, Boss Briggs is now live, we had a temperature cooling because of the expansion of the universe enough so that we had a period called recombination. Uh, even though there wasn't a combination before that, it's called recombination. Uh, if you factor in the assumption that at the time of the Big Bang, everything was all united. That's why they call it recombination. What happened during recombination was that particles, instead of being 
blindingly hot. They were now only at 3,000 degrees Kelvin. Isn't that great? And at 3,000 degrees, they were able to bond and form hydrogen. What is the point of that? Well, when you bond them and form hydrogen, that means that the particles were not in this gluey state, this mesh of this plasma. And so that means, awesome, that means that the, the plasma now that had turned into a solid in a way, you could call it that, by it all yeah, coagulating into hydrogen, it meant that the energy of photons, the light itself, was able to blast forth and continue along forever. And that's what we see as the cosmic microwave background radiation. Occurrence said they don't understand me. I'm very sorry about that. But um, that could be because I'm speaking Australian. <laughs> and Australian can be hard to understand. Um, lucky I'm not speaking completely Australian like, Hey, you going, buddy? Let's talk about dark matter. That would probably be even harder. If you like, I can talk gab. Hey, Eagle, welcome back. Hey, Gab, how are you? Yeah, I'm great, man. What do you want? Pompous, we don't want anything from you. Give me some food. I'm going inside. All right, Pompous, see you later. So, what do we call anisotropies? Anisotropies means that it's not isotropic. Now, we spoke about isotropy in the beginning, which was the very basic meaning is that it's everything is the same everywhere. And you hate the English accent? That's occurrence. I'm sorry to hear that, my friend. Then you are in the wrong podcast. <laughs> so anisotropies means that it did not, it's not smooth. It's not completely smooth. So baryonic matter on the Barbie, damn straight. That's Captain Dotron, one of our fantastic commenters. Baryonic matter, when it was able to turn into hydrogen, of course, it allowed the light to escape. And that means that the light, light escaped through the gaps. So here is an interesting concept that physicists brilliantly came up with. They said, well, if the light is now being blasted out through the gaps that have now appeared because this plasma has turned into hydrogen, that means that by the size of the gaps, we can actually tell how much baryonic matter there is with respect to the, to the photons that were trapped within that plasma at the beginning of time. It's sort of like if you shine, if you put a candle inside a cheese grater and you see the light stream out of the cheese grater and then the light hits the wall, it's going to make a pattern on the wall. And you can see that the pattern is going to show you the gaps if you trace it backwards to the cheese grater to show you where the grates are in the cheese grater, where all the gaps are. And that's pretty much the same thing. So basically, it's and another example would be that if you have light shining through a fence on the other side of the fence, you can, you can only see the light through the gaps. And that means that wherever the gaps are, that's where the fence is not. And so you can tell how much fence there is compared to the gaps. And that's the same thing. That's how we've discovered how many baryons there are compared to photons at the time of recombination that we just spoke about. Why is that important? It's important because it tells us, mind the gaps exactly, it tells us how much baryonic matter there was at the time made up of. It's made up of baryonic matter. And baryonic matter, I spoke about it in the last cast. If anyone wants to go and listen to our last podcast, it's on real Instagram at Gabsmacked and Anortist at Twitter and Gabversity at Twitter. And you can get the link to the first part and I explain that type of stuff. It's important because we can tell 
how much baryon, how many baryons there should be. And this was something I actually had to calculate in my undergraduate for, for quantum mechanics. And it turns out that the amount of baryons that exist only accounts for a small percentage of the total amount of matter that needed to exist to pull the galaxies into formation. And it happens to be the exact amount that we predicted in the last scope we did via gravitational lensing and via other forms of observational evidence and supercomputer models running the Lambda Cold Dark Matter Cosmological Model. Now, what is the chance that every single one of those completely unrelated types of experiments all give you the same answer? No effing idea. Rolling Stone is on the money. Rolling Stone says we are no, no, have no effing idea. That is exactly correct. We have no effing idea. And I, that's probably one of the reasons we find it so fascinating, because it's the journey more than the destination that makes physics so fascinating. How do we even know where to turn? How do we even know, you know, what experiments we have to come up with to even know what we're thinking to even look for? How do we make sense of anything? That's why it's fun. Exactly. So this ends this segment on CMBR, Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation. In our next segment, we are going to talk briefly about the Big Bang nucleosynthesis. Alrighty. We'll see you soon. It's a pleasure to have everyone back for our next segment of our podcast. Everyone on Periscope who's listening, it's a pleasure to have you guys too. And <laughs> Occurrence says the Big Bang is a lie. It could be a lie or it could be a misapprehension. It's most likely incomplete at the very least uh, to answer Occurrence. And someone else said, I think I forget their name, but they said that this is our creation story. And I thought that's a pretty cool way to look at it. We're writing the creation story, but we're constantly editing and rewriting because it's not revelatory. It's something that we're discovering from the ground up. I love all your content. Oh, don't be silly, Alpha Dog. I, uh, I, uh, I know you tease. You tease very well. <laughs> um, that's why I wear a tea cozy because you tease. Oh, it's a really hopeless joke of the day. Welcome, Dr. Jordan. Let's continue. Big Bang nucleosynthesis. Our understanding is in progress or in process. I love that, Fuzzy Pandas. It's another good meme. I think you have a natural talent for giving some memes, my friend. Alrighty. So, the Big Bang nucleosynthesis has some errors in it. One is called the lithium problem, which we'll talk about later. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, okay. So, it provides an estimate of the matter generated no evidence? I wouldn't say no evidence. I would say there's a crap load of evidence, but <laughs> um, it doesn't mean it's true. You're right. It just means that it's it's closer to truth than the idea that some giant came and you know gave birth to an engineer, which then sprung forth something, and now we're here. I mean, who knows? But like we said, that's not. This is all part of the discovery process, guys. Now. It provides an estimate of matter generated in the early universe based upon the quantities of pre preserved light elements, helium, lithium, and deuterium in the universe today. Now, evidence is not always truth. That's exactly, that's a very good point. I was almost going to say that was true. <laughs> Alpha Dog said evidence is not always truth. That's a very good point. And that is why in science, as I've said before, it's very hard to know what is true. It's very easy to know what's false. Or it's much easier to know what's false than to know what's true. 
uh, and it's the same is always lying. Well, maybe not always, but for example, Isaac Newton was wrong, but we didn't find that out for 200 years. Uh, or, or at best, we could say his ideas were incomplete. Hey, Dr. John, welcome back. Another thing, Pluto, uh, who was uh, talking about the orbiting of the planets around the Earth, was wrong. But we, his mathematics worked for 2,000 years until it was Copernicus, I think it was, who was able to simplify it by making our solar system heliocentric. Uh, that was a really good comment. I just saw that one coming up. Simple word, theories. Yes, hypothesis leads to theories. Correct. Correct. The, I would say dark matter is not even a theory. Some people will argue with me. I would still say it's a hypothesis. The evidence for the theory is overwhelming, but the evidence for dark matter itself is underwhelming. It hasn't been detected. And when I say underwhelming, you can hypothesize of some sort of dark matter object, yes. But to say that there's actually evidence of its existence itself and we know its constituency and whether it's homogenous or not, I will ignore comments and talk. Thank you, Obi-Wan Kenobi. That's a very good, wise thing to say. So based, based upon that, let's go back to the Big Bang nucleosynthesis. We said that BBN is sensitive to the fractions of lithium-7 and deuterium, and so it predicts the upper and lower limits of baryonic matter from their present abundances. So what that does is it actually works backwards. So this is called reverse engineering. And there, the, a very good example of that would be to say, let's say that one country develops the Porsche. So Germany develops the Porsche. And then Japan, let's say, takes their technology and re reverse engineers it so that they take it apart piece by piece and figure out how to rebuild it from the ground up. Now, on, that on its, in, in and of itself doesn't do anything. It, in other words, it doesn't show that the Japanese could have done it on their own. But imagine if the Japanese had invented a Porsche, which they've done similar things, and invented the exact Porsche, and then they also got the Japanese Porsche, deconstructed it, rebuilt it, and got the exact same vehicle. So that's a, that's a bad analogy. Because, uh, I'm going to give you a better analogy now. Let me think of a better one. I will mute the podcast for a sec. All right, I've got a good analogy. Okay, let's say you talk to your older brother, someone who's already gone out on a date, and your older brother says to you, don't ever ask them to pay the bill. And then one day, you go out on a date, and you ask them to pay the bill. And they say to you, you're the girl or the guy you took out, you should never have asked me to pay for the bill. What is that? Well, that means that you've gotten the same answer two different ways. One, you got it from your brother who observed it, and then you got it by you deliberately acting as if it wasn't true, and it turned out to be true, and you got the same answer. Now, that's not exactly the best analogy, but it shows you that there's two different ways of discovering. <laughs> you said this is dark matter. There are two different ways of discovering if there is something okay, out there. So let's come back to dark matter. The Big Bang nucleosynthesis... No, that's okay, my friend. Um, someone just asked why we're talking about dating. If you hit the replay, you'll see. <laughs> but we're talking about analogies. So the sample set is small. Yeah. If... Big Bang nucleosynthesis, if baryonic matter 
was more than 5% of the content of the content of the universe, then we should have much more of an abundance of fundamental elements today, hydrogen and deuterium and lithium. But we don't. And so when you go backwards based upon the amount that we do have, <laughs> it shows that, guess what? It shows that baryonic matter should only have been 5%. In other words, the exact same answer that we get from looking at cosmic microwave background radiation, from gravitational lensing, and from running the lambda cold dark matter hypothesis or supercomputers, all of these give us the same answer, which is that baryonic matter has to be a very small component of all of the matter that was around or is around in the universe. Okay. Now, however, that does not mean that dark matter exists. Of course not. It could be that the there is a lot of baryonic matter that was that is undetectable because it's in some other form. Absolutely. But at the same time, what all of these suggests is that there is some sort of matter that is overwhelmingly the majority of matter which does not interact with anything other than gravity. Ah, uh, someone has asked what baryonic matter is. Sorry, uh, just to anyone who's come in, I, I refer you back to the original podcast, which is available at Gabversity on Twitter. And you can see a link to that. It's called Dark Matter Part 1. But baryonic matter is matter that that exists everywhere. It's everything you can see. Everything is made up of baryonic matter. Stars, galaxies, the 100 billion galaxies that we can observe, the 100 billion stars of every one of those 100 billion galaxies, you, me, Earth, everything is all baryonic matter. All right. The next thing that shows us that we are not accounting for most of the matter, in other words, most of it's undetectable, is type 1A supernovae. Now, type 1A supernovae are a special type of supernova, and they have the exact, almost the exact same brightness anywhere they are in the world, or in the universe, I should say. Why is that important? Well, imagine that it's pitch black. Imagine you're out in the, in the night and it's pitch black. And there are, you, all of your friends are all around the park, but you can't see them. I'm just getting some compliments off Periscope, guys, so I'm thanking them. Thank you so much. Now, imagine that you're in that park. Your friends are all over the place. Now, each one lights up a candle, and the candles are all the same type of candle. Then you will know... A standard candle, yes. Then you will know how far away from you they are relative to each other. Because the one that's closer to you, when their candle lights up, it's going to be brighter. When the person at the other end of the park lights up their candle, it's going to be faint. And that's how you know where everyone is with respect to you if it was pitch black and we only had candles. Alrighty. And so what does that mean? Well, type 1A supernovae do the same thing. What has that shown us? It has shown us a few things. Let me show you what we've discovered. It has shown us a certain amount of redshift. And what is redshift, you might ask? Well, redshift is that not only are your friends lighting candles, but they're also running away from you. And they're running away from you so fast 
that the light from their candle is actually changing color because it's getting stretched as it moves away from you. So what does that mean? Well, it shows us a few things. It shows us that the universe is expanding, of course, and it also shows us that the expansion is accelerating. So you've got to imagine that your friends in the park start jogging away from you slowly and then faster and faster and faster and faster and faster, and faster until they're so fast that you can't even see the light itself. It's been stretched to oblivion. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that the acceleration, because we know what the rate of acceleration is, then we know how much of this energy forcing the universe to expand is as a percentage of everything that's in the universe. And that happens to be 70%. Why is that important? It's important because combined with how much baryonic matter we know exists, it doesn't make sense that the universe is only made up of baryonic matter and dark energy. And so once again, that's more evidence consistent with this idea that there's a lot of matter that we can't detect. Now, there are other explanations for that as well. So, of course, because we now are aware of this weird mystery and that no one so far has solved it, the smartest people around the world and, and everyone else, anyone who's interested, basically, has tried to come up with answers for this. Now, one of them is called weekly interactive or interacting massive particles called WIMPs. And I'm going to talk about that in our next segment. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. It's an honor to have you all here. We are not doing this with Periscope, and we are saving some of those interruptions for another day. In this section, we're going to talk about weekly interacting massive particles, also known as WIMPs. Believe it or not, that is true. Now, what do we even mean by these? Well, they are what you could call hypothetical or mathematical structures that are a potential to explain why it is that we can't detect this matter if it does exist that is causing all of these phenomena that we've been talking about in all these segments and the past two podcasts on dark matter. And one of the beauties is that mathematically you can restrict what size and at what speed and what type of characteristics these particles have because, for example, we know that if they had properties that were able to be detected by current technology, then we would have seen them. And because we don't see them, then they don't have those properties. So that's just one way that, I mean, of course, once again, it doesn't mean that that's correct, but it is a typical logical way to try and progress forward to discover if there is anything there. On top of that, it is also important to realize that even if we can come up with these structures, there then has to become there has, there has to be a way for us to conceive of an object that could even detect it if it did exist. Now, of course, the problem with that is that if your experimental technology to detect it doesn't work, that will look exactly the same as though it does work, but the particle doesn't exist. How would you actually know? So this is more amazing puzzles that fall down the line along the path of discovery. That's not the theoretical side, that would be actually the engineering side of physics, figuring out how to design such types of uh, technology that could then detect this theoretical particle. It's quite amazing. And black holes was actually one of those processes. After Einstein's theory of relativity came out, 
black holes were a natural consequence of that theory. And of course, the idea of a black hole existed well before the black holes were actually discovered via observation. And by observation, I mean by inference, as we've spoken about in the last few segments. So let's continue talking about WIMPs. Let us begin talking about WIMPs. They are appealing because of their dark matter properties. And as I said before, they by definition, they are, have dark matter properties because they were created, and in theory, uh, as particles that have to have certain properties in order to fit what dark matter is or is not, uh, I guess, uh, in the sense that it cannot be detected by anything other than gravitational effects that it may have. The leading candidate WIMP is the neutralino. And the neutralino, of course, as, as I said before, falls under theoretical prediction and arises as a result of extending the standard model that we've spoken about with something called supersymmetry. And I have not spoken about supersymmetry, but that is a, another section of physics that you can study. And if you're interested, you can go to Stefan, S-T-E-F-F-E-N, in 2008, who wrote a paper on it. Not only does the neutralino have the desired properties, but it also accounts for the hierarchical problem and gauge coupling. Once again, Stefan talked about these in 2008, and I have not spoken about those in detail. If anyone, please, as always, you can provide feedback, and I can talk more about those specific topics if you would like to know more about hierarchical problem, or the hierarchical problem, and gauge coupling. But of course, by solving these extra problems that arise to help answer the question about how do these theories fit what we're actually observing, it makes it much more appealing and hypothetically a much more credible prospect for verification. Now, as I said before, coming up with something in theory is just the beginning. We then have to see whether it's actually even worth putting money and resources and time and intellect and work and everything else into developing a way to even detect it if it does exist. So you can see there's a huge process that's involved. There are other candidates like the massive neutrino, but the massive neutrino is not now considered to have enough mass to account for dark matter on a cosmic scale. And that was something discovered by Fries in 2005, F-R-W-E-S-E. And the sterile neutrino, but that one there has not yet been ruled out, also by Fries in 2008. Another exotic candidate for cold dark matter is the axion. Now, the axion is probably more of a well-known topic. If you're an engineer you've, or you're into physics or anything like that, you've probably heard about the axion. And that was there developed by a theorist called Sikivi, S-I-K-I-V-I-E, in 2009, published a paper where Sikivi theoretically shows how axions could form Bose-Einstein condensates, which are BECs, which is an amazing type of, almost advanced type of technology, you could call it. <laughs> And that there has been replicated in the lab by reducing temperatures to one one thousandth and even one one millionth in some cases, I believe, I'm not exactly sure on that one, you might have to fact check me, of a degree above absolute zero, which is phenomenal. And this type of strange plasmatic, if you want to call it, condensate is something that has special properties that would fit dark matter in galactic halos 
and would account for aspects of dark matter in on the galactic scale in galactic halos and we spoke about galactic halos before being this invisible type of halo that extends galaxies far further out than what we can actually see uh, from the visible matter uh, such as the Milky Way. The Milky Way is actually surrounded by, if it is dark matter and not the warping of gravity in some other way we don't understand, if it is this dark matter or an axion or something like that, it actually extends out a huge amount, much, much, much more than the size of the visible Milky Way itself. It's quite scary actually. Now, moving on. Although axions have not been experimentally verified, they have been used in a hot dark matter model of galactic halos by Chan and Ehrlich in 2013. You can look that up, C-H-A-N and Ehrlich, E-H-R-L-I-C-H, which also involves many galactic structural problems. So as you can see, every single idea that's come up with has problems associated with it. How about this variable? Oh, how about this variable? How about that variable? Okay. Now the very the next segment we're going to talk about is under alternate theories of gravity. Now this is going to be a very controversial section because it's very bold because what people are saying in this case is that no it's not that there is matter there it's that we don't understand gravity itself. It's a very bold claim and we'll talk about that in the next segment. Let's talk about alternative theories of gravity. Why is this important? Well, all the way back in, I think, the first or the second segment of the first podcast on dark matter, we mentioned that there were three basic assumptions. Homogeneity, or homogeneity, isotropy, and general relativity. Now, if we are going to mess with any of these assumptions, what are we going to mess with? Are we going to mess with homogeneity? or isotropy, which is basically that the universe, in a very, very oversimplified definition, is the same everywhere, and from anywhere you look, uh, in terms of inertial frames of reference, for any of those who are scientists out there. Uh, in other words, that where we are in the universe is nowhere special. It's not like the Earth is the center of anything, or that there is anything that's the center of the universe. Are we going to mess with any of that? Or are we going to say that perhaps general relativity is wrong. Now, the you might want to say, okay, well, maybe our understanding of gravity, space-time, general relativity is wrong. Maybe Einstein was wrong. Well, of course, there's a problem with that. Problem is, let's try and come up with something better than that. <laughs> so far, there have been a lot of brilliant people who have tried, and they have succeeded in explaining without necessarily needing to invoke the existence of dark matter, now, forgive me if I have confused invoke and evoke, but anyone can look that up and always send me feedback. Um, one is uh, one is to come up with and one is to prompt something that already exists within you. Slight difference, I forget the two. There is our small English test for the day. I'll probably have to look it up now as well. Now, I do think, just a, a bit of a correction as well, I do think that I said Pluto as opposed to Plato in one of my sections uh, on uh, one of the last segments here. If I did, that's life. Goes to show you that not even the gabs is flawless. <laughs> it's a good reminder. <laughs> Coming back to what we were saying, do we want to mess with Einstein's understanding? Well, as we said, some brilliant people have come up with ideas, such as Milgram, 
and modified Newtonian dynamics, which actually does fit the observations that I've mentioned, all of these observations about this idea of this dark matter entity, without having to actually add extra matter. What that is saying, in, in Mond's case, modified Newtonian dynamics, which we call Mond, is that gravity behaves differently all the way out there at the edge of galaxies than it does here when the apple, apple falls and hits Isaac Newton on the head, <laughs> which of course never happened, or most likely never happened, but it's a fun story. Now, the problem with that is that it creates new problems. Well, Mond, by Professor Milgram from Israel back in the 80s, was able to brilliantly come up with this mathematical concept, and it does explain these galactic rotation curves that we mentioned in our first podcast on this. It explains a lot of these uh, phenomena that we've discovered, and yet, and yet, it fails to explain much of what general relativity has successfully explained from over a hundred years ago until today. And, and so we have a problem right there. Now, other alternative theories, we can talk about entropic gravity, which is the idea that gravity is not a fundamental force, but merely the illusion of being a force, just like cold and is the absence of heat, and just like heat itself is more of an illusion, but actually it's explained by the kinetic energy of fundamental particles moving within a macroscopic object. So therefore, heat itself is what we feel, but it's not actually real. It's a, well, it's a derivative of what is real. Uh, this has been uh, pushed forward uh, very well by Dr. Eric Verlind. I think you can fact check me. In 2010, came up with a paper explaining this. Now, why was that interesting? Well, his understanding of gravity, or his suggested understanding, was able to be used to derive the mathematical equations, which not only explain Newton's versions of gravity, but also those mathematical equations describe the modified Newtonian dynamics version of gravity as well. So it actually describes both. Now, why would it be that two different professors looking at two different things, Mr. M Professor Milgram, Professor Eric Verlind, how could they come up with the same mathematical equations? Well, is it just coincidence or is it that they might be onto something? Well, there's a couple of problems with that as well. One of the problems is that Professor Milgram discovered, I guess, or created these mathematical equations via observing and measuring the speeds of you know, thousands and thousands of uh, galactic rotation curves and was able to derive an equation from those. So what that means is that he's derived an equation from observation. He hasn't derived it from a fundamental understanding of why those equations are even there in the first place. And that is a big difference between Professor Milgram and Einstein, where Einstein came up with a picture of space-time and then used that picture or geometric structure to then derive equations as opposed to looking outside for the equations. And that's very important, of course, because that shows that the theory is something that can be used to predict further things as opposed to just running it, reverse engineering what's going on to write mathematical equations. Of course, that's answered by Eric Verlin because he came up with the equations not by observation, but by deriving them through his theory or understanding of entropic gravity. Now, of course, there is a, another professor whose name I forget escapes me at this point in time, 
um, and I do apologize, it's a little bit hard for me to pronounce, he's from Georgia, and uh, of course another brilliant professor or, or a physicist, a doctor, who has said that it, gravity cannot be entropic and has to be a fundamental force in its own right. And so once again, we are not completely sure, none of these add up perfectly and we are still disputing each one of these pieces of a puzzle which we don't even know are pieces or if it's the correct puzzle. So what happens? Well, let's continue with a few other forms of alternative theories of gravity, and then we'll end up almost at the end of the Dark Matter podcast. So let's talk about a few other things. Now, firstly, why is all of this such a big deal in terms of looking for other theories of gravity? Well, the major thing is because no Dark Matter particle has been detected. And we have been looking for, it feels like in human scales, a very long time. Perhaps not necessarily on a cosmic scale, but for us it's been a long time, more than half a century. Uh, well, somewhere around half a century at least. And so people are saying, well, maybe they don't exist. Maybe that's why we need these alternative explanations to gravity. Of course, Newtonian gravity and general relativity, which is the gravity that we work with, of course, which has worked up until now, has never been and cannot be tested on galactic scales and upwards with our modern technology at this point in time. And that was something proposed by Gergely, G-E-R-G-E-L-Y, or Gergely, or Gergely, I do apologize for botching up the name, in 2011. So on top of modified Newtonian dynamics, which we spoke about, there's also a relativistic generalization, tensor vector scalar gravity. Now that's quite interesting. And what are we saying? We're saying that we're operating modified Newtonian dynamics, factoring in relativity, and working with three- and four-dimensional numbers. Uh, this is quite amazing. If anyone's done linear algebra or matrix algebra, you'll understand what we're talking about. But basically, it's called TVES, and this was developed by a group, including Professor or Dr. Birkenstein in 2005. So you can see that it's quite amazing. All of these things that we're learning have not been... Uh, it has not been very long since we have even come across these ideas, which have, has have yet to be disproven. Okay, so modified Newtonian dynamics states that Newtonian gravity breaks down in small limit acceleration and is solved by correspondingly amending his second law, and as we've said before. Now, the modified version of MON, the relativistic tensor vector, scalar model, which was TVES, which I'll call it TVES from now on, it forms the basis of cosmological models that are successful in explaining gravitational lensing with dark matter galactic mechanics and produces similar predictions to general relativity as other cosmological models, according to Birkenstein in 2005. So that's great. Yay, we solved some of the problems that were already solved by Einstein's general relativity, but we, of course, would have to remove that if we're using another theory of gravity such as Mond or Tevez. And by replacing general relativity with Mond or Tevez, we end up with solving a lot of problems. But of course, there are other problems that are not solved, such as Tevez and others cannot account for the shape of all of the CMB anisotropies. Remember what we spoke about? Cosmic microwave background anisotropies. The little lack of smoothness that we see in the CMBR. Now, on top of that, there's another one called extra-dimensional theory, and these are broken up into many different ones. Extra-dimensional theories of gravity suggest that 
our four-dimensional space-time can be modeled as a three-brain, a brain, B-R-A-N-E, and that's sort of like a membrane type of thing, embedded in a 5D space-time, actually. And that was spoken about by Gurgeli again in 2011. But these theories can account for many predictions of dark matter, but unfortunately are unable to account for collisionless dark matter evidence from the bullet cluster. All right, now we're going to talk about the bullet cluster. And let's quickly talk about that. Using gravitational lensing data from the bullet cluster, a collision, Kloh observed that the gravitational potential followed the distribution of the galaxies and concluded that this scenario cannot be accounted for modification to the conventional laws of gravity without explaining the collisionless effect. Now, this is quite famous. The bullet cluster is actually the poster child for the existence of dark matter. Nothing else thus far can explain it that is in mainstream theories. There are some other theories, such as one I'm working on with my professor, that does explain the behavior of the bullet cluster. But I won't get into that on this cast. That is much more of a detailed one, which I will dedicate to periscope gaversity. There's a lot more mathematics, and you'll, uh, you, you'll probably have to have a better understanding of quantum mechanics. So you don't want to have to worry about that at this point. However, let us now move on to our segment called the bullet cluster. And we're almost at the end of our dark matter series. And now we come to the bullet cluster, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, if anyone has looked into dark matter for longer than 10 minutes at any lecture at a university, the bullet cluster will possibly come up very quickly. What are we talking about here? Well, we are talking about basically a collision in space. And the collision does not behave in a way that can be explained so far without invoking dark matter. Now, why is that the case? Well, using technologies that we've mentioned before, such as gravitational lensing, it's interesting that when these two clusters collided, and you can see some of this on Wikipedia, there is a little simulation that can show you in hyperspeed what's happened over tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years in slow motion. But we have two galaxies, let's just call them galaxies or clusters, that have smashed. And you would expect, just like if you had two armies back in the Middle Ages that were running towards each other, that when they collide, that you would see a lot of the mass collect in the middle, where they've collided, because they've all smashed into each other and there's a big mass of soldiers fighting in the middle, so that's where you would expect the mass to be. But in fact, that's not what's going on. What happens is that some of the mass collides, the visible mass collides, but then the two big blobs of gravitational warping, which so far can only be explained by some hypothetical dark matter, pass almost right through each other. So it's almost like, imagine these two armies in the Middle Ages that we spoke about were fighting, and one of them, most of the soldiers, instead of colliding, just run right through each other, like ghosts. They don't, they, they don't even interact at all. They run right past each other to the other ends of the field where the armies are fighting. And only a small percentage smash each other and end up in the middle. What does that mean? Well, that is a very unusual phenomenon that, as of yet, can't be explained by modified gravity very well if at all. 
but it can be explained by this hypothetical dark matter invisible particle that doesn't even interact with itself and really can only be inferred or its existence can only be inferred by its warping of gravity and of course the problem is we come back right to the beginning which is that dark matter has never been detected so what do we do well that is the very very short oversimplified <laughs> filled with analogies explanation of dark matter and why it's called dark why it's invisible why it's so hard to even figure out in terms of its existence and it shows you that the world of physics and the world of science is a lot more complicated than any of us think it might be and that concludes our discussion on dark matter that was a very long short answer <laughs> on why it's so difficult to figure out what it is now at periscope.tv forward slash gab adversity I talk in much more detail about quantum mechanics and based on that I talk about a theory involving gravitational eigenstates and that is an explanation that has yet been explored enough to be disproven and so far fits everything that we see and it does not need to bring forth the existence of some non-baryonic form of matter or some new exotic particle but I'll be talking about that in detail as I said periscope.tv forward slash gabversity if you like these podcasts and you find that they do benefit you and you appreciate them Please don't be shy. Jump onto patreon.com forward slash gabsmacked, G-A-B-S-M-A-C-K-E-D. And it can be 20 cents, 50 cents, a dollar, $10, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. It helps the cause. And I will continue to do more and more casts and share as much knowledge as I can with the world and keep discovering new knowledge, which I can also share with the world. It's a pleasure. Love all my Patreons. Love all my listeners. Love all of our listeners across our YouTube and all of our Periscope platforms. And don't forget to take life one smack at a time. Hey guys, this is Eagle. Hey Eagle, welcome back. Yeah, don't forget man, I've been in two wars and I'm pro-freedom. Um, I don't think that has anything to do with science. Well yeah, you can't study your stuff without freedom. Well thanks Eagle for that, I really do appreciate it. Get away all of you. It's a hot day, I want ice cream. You always want ice cream, Pompous, what is it with you? All of you go away.